morning. It's great to be here. We got a wonderful crowd, and what a privilege. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a beautiful day outside, and just thankful for another opportunity to worship with you. As was mentioned in our announcements and in the prayers, it's an emotional time going on. There are many of us who are suffering, many of us that we're praying for, and a lot of people on the road. So let us be sure to remember one another and to pray for one another. There is an impressive prison in Brazil where the inmates are being drastically transformed. Charles Colson, who pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice in the Watergate scandal, spent seven years in prison beginning in 1974. After his release, Colson set out to reform the U.S. penal system. He traveled around the world and visited over 800 different prisons. He reported that over 25 years ago in the city of San Jose dos Campos, Brazil, a prison was turned over to two laymen who planned to run it on Christian principles. Every prisoner was assigned someone to be accountable. Every prisoner would take a course on character development, learn a trade, and make restitution to their victim if possible. In addition, every prisoner was assigned a family to work with even after their release. And after visiting the prison, Charles Colson wrote, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys and opened the gates and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas. I saw people working industriously. The walls were decorated with motivational sayings and scripture. Colson noted an amazing statistic. In contrast to our national recidivism rate of nearly 90% of repeat offenders, in this particular prison over the last 25 years, only 4% were repeat offenders and second-time second prisoners. He questioned and wrote, how is that possible? He continued by saying, I saw the answer when my inmate guide escorted me to the notorious cell once used for torture and solitary confinement. Today, my guide told me, that cell block houses a single inmate. As we reached the end of the long concrete corridor, and as he put the key into the lock, he paused and asked, Are you sure you want to go in there? Coulson, a little irritated, replied, Of course, I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly, he swung open the massive door, and Coulson described the scene by saying, I saw the prisoner in that cell. Jesus, a crucifix beautifully carved by the inmates, Jesus hanging on the cross. He's doing time for the rest of us 
my guide said softly. The cross of Christ in this prison served to remind the inmates that there was already someone who had paid the penalty for their sin, and his name was Jesus. Coulson went on to continue and stated his frustration in saying, These poor prisoners without privilege, they are the richest men in the world because they take for granted what each of us take for granted sitting in these church pews every Sunday. That there was someone who was not guilty, who was taken as guilty, who was condemned, who was punished, not for his own sins, but for our sins. And the last thing he says is, they live with a richer sense of God's grace than I have felt in many church buildings. And because of that today, our study for just a little while, I want to talk about being crucified with Christ. We want to talk about the transforming power of the cross. Now, some people are already asleep. Some people have heard these sermons their whole life. And you're probably thinking, another sermon on the cross? I already know that. And the fact of the matter is, we don't. Because if we all understood this, we would not be living the way we are. We would be changed. We would be transformed. The whole goal of this sermon is to study the transforming power of the cross. Now, Paul used the cross as a main staple in his preaching. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul, he returned, he revisited the mountain of Calvary, the cross of Calvary, every time he preached, a majority of the time he preached. And that's all we want to do this morning. We've just got done uh, concluding our study in the book of Acts. And that's fantastic. Praise be to God. But we need to go back to some basics, some Bible basics on fundamental concepts. All I want to do for this next year, my goal as a preacher, I just want to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. For just a little while in our minds, we need to go to the theater of our minds and revisit the cross as Paul but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ironically, what was a sign and a symbol of suffering and shame had become the Apostle Paul's victory cry. It was his shout for joy, and it is and it should be with us. We should not boast in our abilities or and what we have in our blessings. The only thing we ought to boast in is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ to each and every Christian is everything. But it is not everything to everybody. It is not everything to everyone. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Not everybody reacts the same way. And we know this. There are people who, they grow up going to church. They listen to the same sermons. 
They read the same verses. They grew up in the same homes, but they react totally differently to this message. Some people, those who don't believe, those who are perishing spiritually, they think of the cross as foolishness. And I need to clarify something. When we talk about the cross this morning, we're not talking about the literal, physical cross. We're talking about the message of the cross, and that message is salvation. This is what Paul is talking about. Some people think it's foolishness. They don't understand. But to those who believe and are being saved, it is the power of God. This cross, this message, the gospel, has the power to transform and to save. And this morning, we want to be transformed by it. So we will go to Mount Calvary this morning, and we will set our eyes on the cross as the great apostle preached and always did. But before we go any further, we kind of we have to set the stage. And I want to say this at the forefront. We don't have enough time this morning to talk about Jesus' trial. We don't have enough time to talk about his arrest. We don't have enough time to talk about his beatings or his scourgings. We don't even have enough time to talk about the cross, what happened at the cross. We just want to focus on a little a small encounter Jesus had on the way to the cross. But this was an emotional scene and an emotional time in the life of Jesus. This was the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And him and his disciples, they traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now the Passover was one of three great and major Jewish celebrations that all Israelite men were commanded to to observe, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16, Three times a year all your male shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called the Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So God commanded all of Israel, all of the Israelite men, to go back to Jerusalem and to remember the Passover. What is the Passover? It is the time when God freed his people, the Jews, from Egyptian bondage. This was a great celebration. And what we're about to see is this was sometimes a once-in-a-life uh, opportunity to Partake in. Though we just read that God commanded the Jews to observe it every year to go to Jerusalem, many of them could not. The reason why they could not is because is due to what God had warned them of in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 and verse 64. <clears throat> the Bible says in verse 15, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So God promised them earlier in the chapter, he says, if you just listen to me, if you just do what I say, 
I'll bless you in all these ways. But he concludes by saying, if you don't listen to me, I'll curse you in all these ways. Here's one of those ways. Verse 64. If you are unfaithful, unfaithful, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. You would think, because they had this warning beforehand, they would not go down that road. They did go down that road. And God is faithful. He blesses when he promises he'll bless. He condemns when he promises he'll condemn. This literally happened to the children of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, God scattered his people, and he scattered them through the Assyrian captivity, through the Babylonian captivity, and through the Medo-Persian captivity. And this took Jews from Jerusalem and Judea and from Palestine, and it took them throughout the known world. And because of that, what was supposed to be a time of celebration in Jerusalem wasn't so common for everybody. The Passover was a time to remember God, but it was also a time to reunite with family and friends. I can't even do this justly. I, I try and come up with a comparison. And you may think, well, that's like when we go to Oklahoma for the New Year's meeting. And honestly, that doesn't hold a candle to what this was. It would be like if we all went to Oklahoma, if every Christian in the world went to Oklahoma and you had to walk there, and the whole way you walked, you sang praises to God and you prayed. That's the only way we can even compare the two situations. So this was truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But despite the difficulties of getting there, one scholar said this, some scholars have suggested that the city swells, the city of Jerusalem swells to more than 2 million during the time of the feast. You want to talk about a religious revival or a religious celebration? This is it. This was a special event. And out of all of the 2 million people there, God, God's word focuses on one man. Focuses on one man. And Luke chapter 23 and verse 26, the Bible says, Now as they led Jesus away to crucify him, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Here the Bible introduces us to a man named Simon the Cyrenian. Now, Cyrene is located in northern Africa, or North Africa, and it's modern-day Libya. He traveled all of the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This was a once-in-a-lifetime event. This, like we said, likely because of the difficulties and dangers of travel, this may be his first time. This may be his only time. This may be the first time and only time his family gets to go. And no doubt this was an exciting time in their life to go to Jerusalem 
the holy city, the capital of the Jews, the city of David, the scriptures call it. And no doubt they went there and they wanted to see the sights. They wanted to smell the smells. And they were getting ready to sacrifice their Passover lamb. But Simon was interrupted unexpectedly. Mark's account gives us more detail. Mark says in Mark 15 and verse 21, Then they, the Roman soldiers, compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. To bear his cross. The Bible paints a picture here of a man who is there by chance. Jesus has just been tried and they think he's guilty. They condemn him. They've beaten him. And now they escort him to die on Golgotha. The mountain of the skulls. Or what is called Calvary. And as they go, the Bible paints a picture that Simon was compelled as he was coming out of the country. As Jesus is carrying his cross, you kind of get the picture that Simon, he wasn't trying to be there. He just happened to be there that day. Now, everybody who was watching Jesus, they were there for different reasons. Some out of sympathy, some out of hostility, and then you had a few who were there just because of curiosity. Simon was there for neither of those reasons, none of those reasons. Mark's gospel paints the picture that he was just out and about. He was just on for a stroll, and all of a sudden the Roman soldier said, Hey, you, get here, come here. You pick up this cross now. That might sound strange to us. How, what are they even doing? He's a Cyrenian, not a Roman. Roman law consisted of the ability, Roman soldiers could get any citizen they wanted, and they could choose you, and they could make you do whatever task they didn't want to do. That's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he who tells you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Jesus was aware of this custom, and there was a rule that the Romans could make you do anything up to one mile's distance. So Jesus said, you go above and beyond whatever they ask you. And if you did not do what they said, you could go to jail and be killed. So Simon, he's walking about. He gets caught up in the pedestrian traffic. And the Romans call him out. And I can kind of picture this in my mind. He probably goes, they talk, oh, they, they're talking to me. And they say, you pick up this cross and you bear it. This was a day that started out like any other. Simon probably had his plans, what he wanted to do, what he wanted to eat. He was getting his mind right to sacrifice the Passover lamb. But unexpectedly, he had come across the Lamb of God being sacrificed right in front of him. What a moment. What a sight. 
he sees a weak and weary Jesus, unable to even bear his own cross, and he steps in and he helps him. Now, Simon, when he helps Jesus, he's there to celebrate the Passover, but no doubt he does not know all of the symbolism or significance of what was going on. Very likely he didn't have a clue what was being fulfilled before his very eyes. We want to look at for just a second the picture of the Passover. Here is one way the Old Testament foreshadowed Jesus through the Passover. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was supposed to be a male lamb without spot or blemish, physically flawless. Jesus is the sinless son of God. So Jesus is without sin or spot, spot or blemish spiritually. That's one hint or foreshadow. The male lamb that was, was tied to the altar at 9 a.m. when it was killed. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. The scriptures teach us. They would kill the Passover lamb at 3 p.m. And Jesus died at 3 p.m. The Bible says. With the Passover lamb, none of its bones would be broken. And Jesus, none of his bones would be broken to fulfill the scripture. Lastly, all inside the house would be saved from physical death because of the blood smeared on the doorpost and the lintels. They would be saved from physical death. But Jesus, all inside the house of God, the church, will be saved from spiritual death because of the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And with all of these foreshadows and all of these hints, the Bible says this. Paul says, for Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. This is how John could say in John 1 and 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Many people would just look at this event and say this was coincidence. But this was providence unfolding before their very eyes. Now, before we get back to Simon, I want us to look at some incidental moments where Jesus showed influence over people. People that just came across him for five minutes or so and really were changed forever because of it. Pilate, after he tried Jesus, heard his plea and questioned him, he concluded, I find no fault in this man. This man's innocent. He even washed his hands of the whole matter in Luke chapter 23. Continuing on, the Bible says that one of the thieves on the cross was changed. He was moved by Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 23 and verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We deserve this, but he doesn't. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. These crucified criminals on the left and the right, one of them had the wherewithal to go, this man is different. Just moments before, the first thing Jesus says on the cross is this. Father, forgive them. He did not curse men. He did not blaspheme God. He prayed for the men who were trying to kill him. And this man saw what others could not see. Lastly, a Roman centurion. At the cross, he says in Matthew 27 and 54, So when the centurion and those with them who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let me put it like this. A Roman ruler, a criminal, a robber, and a Roman soldier, they all came to the conclusion, he's innocent, he's Lord, he's the Son of God. This shows us there's proof. You don't have to know the Bible. The Jews, many of the Jews had all of the tools. They had the cheat sheet to the text. And they couldn't come to this conclusion that these men did. Jesus was more than a man. And quickly, we see that Simon came to a conclusion of his own. Getting back to him, the Bible says in Mark 15 and verse 21, Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, now, why would Mark's gospel give us this detail? The only logical conclusion is that because Mark wrote to Romans, the Romans he's writing to, they must know who Rufus is. Alexander and Rufus are. We get a clue of this in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, where Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. One scholar says this. Mark names his sons who, it is agreed, later on held prominent positions in the church. From this data, the conclusion is drawn that this strange contact with Jesus led to Simon's conversion and thus to the prominence of his sons in the church. This incidental moment, this happenstance moment, being compelled and volunteered to carry the cross of Jesus, this changed Simon's life forever. The Bible gives us sufficient evidence that he, didn't, he did not just carry the cross, he was converted by it. Ironically, the man who was forced to pick up the cross never put it down. He never put it down. It transformed his life and the life of his family. Now, what am I bringing up with this? There are people here this morning who are from such different backgrounds. Maybe you've been raised in the church, whatever that even means. Maybe this is your first time visiting. Why are you here? Why are we here? 
Simon, he did not start this day wanting to be there. He had no thought in his mind that I want to go see this guy who is the son of God. It was just by coincidence. And imagine putting yourself in his shoes and thinking, what are the chances I was there? You would think that was providential. Just to give God the credit that he had the plan, he meant it for me to be there. How would you feel being in his footsteps? I know exactly what that feels like. I'm not even supposed to be here right now. I'm supposed to be in the NFL. I'm supposed to be in the NFL. I'm supposed to be a quarterback. This was never my plan to be a preacher. But praise be to God. I'm not even supposed to be alive in all seriousness. I almost died twice. Minimum twice. But one day, I don't even remember what happened this day. No, I did not see Jesus bear his cross. I saw a Christian bearing theirs. At the gym that day, I saw someone who was living the life. I saw two people. We did not talk about God. We did not talk about the Bible. But they were carrying the cross, and it was so loud. Their actions spoke louder than words. It was abundantly clear. I don't know what church they go to. They love God, though. Why are you here today? I started going to church. I started studying. And like Simon, I found myself in a weird situation. I was not planning on being confronted by the cross today. And I remember sitting in the pews of a sermon, and I remember exactly what I was thinking. The invitation went up, went on, and I'm standing there, and Lane Branch, I've been going to church for three months. He looks at me and gives me the look like, bro, what are you waiting for? And I remember the song ended and I sat down. And I sat down and I go, Isaac, I have been confronted with this cross the last three months. Why have I not obeyed the gospel? And you know what I thought? I got mad at myself. I said, Isaac, why do you always have to be the grown-up? Why do you always have to be the grandpa? You're supposed to be partying more now, fooling around more than ever. You're in college. What are you thinking? You really want to change? But here's how my mind changed. I realized that day, if I leave here and I die, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And it's hell. And I asked the brethren to baptize me that day. I want to ask again, why are you here? Are you here because you want to be? Are you here because you're expected to be? Are you here because your family or your friends or because you don't want anyone on your back? It's got to become yours. People can make you go to church, but at some point you got to pick up the cross and never let it down. 
And I'm reminded of the words Jimmy once told me. He said, I knew a preacher who had a drug problem. I said, a preacher with a drug problem? That's rare. He goes, it wasn't rare. I know a preacher. He said, growing up, I had a drug problem. Drug problem. I was drugged to church Sunday morning. I was drugged to church Sunday afternoon. I was drugged to church Wednesday night. But at some point, I had to choose to go. And I was changed. And I was transformed by the cross. Simon, the Cyrenian, what started off as any other day, changed the rest of his life. How are we supposed to respond? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Simon was compelled at first by force, but then out of love. And that's why he didn't put it down. We must be compelled out of love. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live longer, should live no longer for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. Someone once asked me, when does Jesus do some love stuff? When does he do that nice stuff? And I said, well, how loving does dying for you sound? It's real simple. Christianity in a sentence is this. He died for us, we live for him. Continuing on very quickly, not to read all these verses, but... The Bible makes clear, crucified with Christ, that's that moment in the movie where they say the title, crucified with Christ, we learn that when we're baptized, we are baptized into Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and we are crucified with him. The Bible says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We can't go back you should not go back, and you have not so learned Christ if you want to go back to the world. Paul would go on to say in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul gets to the crux of this matter when he says, this life I live, I live for him, not for myself. This is the whole key of Christianity. If you look at the cross like a burden, you're going to be miserable. And I'll tell you as a preacher, just quit. If you want to look at this as a burden, and you want to get forced into doing all this, you're not, you won't do it. You can't view this as a burden. It's got to be the greatest blessing to spend the rest of our lives for him. I don't, even deserve, I don't even deserve to be a preacher. I don't even deserve to have my sins forgiven. I don't even deserve to be alive. None of us do. But his name is Jesus. It is I who live, but I live for Christ. He says in Galatians 5 and 24, and those who are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
We live in this physical body with all of this frustration. But he says you don't live, you live in the body, but you don't live for the body. We live spiritually to God. We don't live for our passions or temptations. We live as servants of Jesus Christ. We live in the flesh, but not for the flesh. Lastly, in this point, Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world, watch this, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world and all of its pleasures and sins, it's dead to me. We can't go back. We cannot go back. We have to live for God. Set your minds on things above, not of this world. Living in the world, but not for the world. In our last 10 minutes of our study, I want us to address something that is just true. Not everybody is transformed by the cross. Not everybody is actually converted in the most literal sense, spiritually. We see this with the Jews, with Christians, with the church in Sardis, with the church in Laodicea, and the church in Ephesus. These verses are going to come back up in a second, so no worries. We'll begin with the Jews. Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, just to read the only underlined part, he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not to get into all of the book of Romans, that's a whole other sermon. But the point that Paul is making here is that not all physical, blood-descendant Israelites are true Israelites. You can be physically a descendant of Abraham, but spiritually be a descendant of the devil. These were people who, they put all the emphasis on the outward spectacle and show of religion, but inward they were not changed. So Paul corrects them in chapter 2 by saying, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. Being a true Jew, being a true Christian, is having your heart changed. It's not just having one loaf and one cup, singing and giving a collection and a sermon. And prayer. It's far greater than that. Quickly moving on. Paul predicted that there would be Christians like this when perilous times would come in the future. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, These people have a form of godliness but deny its power. And from such people turn away. I'm not the best reader. Or I don't understand all of the verses in the Bible. So sometimes when I'm confused, I go to the easy-to-read version, which is written to second graders. Here's what the easy-to-read version says. They will go on pretending to be devoted to God, but they will refuse to let that devotion change the way they live. Stay away from these people. You know how many times I've gone to a, a, a big meeting, I've met someone, and unfortunately, this, I don't ask for this. This just happens. I leave and I meet someone else who's from that new friend's congregation. And they say, 
Yeah, that person, their family is real popular in the church, but at the home congregation, they do zip. They've got a prestige, they got some prominence, but there's no real substance with their religion. We don't want to be like this. We don't want to be pretenders like the Pharisees. And Paul, he made it so sharp, he said, do not hang out with these people. Because being a lukewarm Christian is infectious. No one wants to be an average Christian. Paul would go on, and, or excuse me, Jesus would say to the church in Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He says, this church, I know you guys are popular. Everyone thinks the best of you guys, but that ain't true. You guys are dead. You guys are spiritually dead. That reminds me of one time I was praying with a brother, and he said, he was praying for us, a young guy. He said, Lord, please be with Isaac and the church in Auburn that they could be like the church at Oakdale. So after the prayer, I said to him, Hey, brother, um, you didn't say anything wrong. I'm not mad at you or anything. But let me make something clear. I'm not trying to be like Oakdale. Oakdale is not even trying to be like Oakdale. Oakdale wants to be the church of the Bible, and we at Auburn want to be the church of the Bible. Do not preach for us like that. Because men think they know what a strong church is, but God knows who's not. He says, Jesus says, I know that you are truly dead. Verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So it turns out not everybody at the church in Sardis, even though most of them were dead, not all of them were dead. Spiritually, some were still walking faithfully. With all love and respect, Not all of us will go to heaven. That's just a fact. If we stay the same way we are, not all of us will go. I can't even say I will. Now, the scriptures teach us you can have confidence in going to heaven. But men and brethren, if you want to talk about one of my biggest fears in this work, is for this to be us. For not all of us to get there together. Every leader of this congregation needs to think of every individual here. And whoever you're okay with not going to heaven, just don't be a leader. Just talk less. This is a group effort, and we all have to be all in, transformed and on fire for God. He would go on to say to the church in Laodicea, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Man, I love this. You guys know how I feel about food. So I just want to say something real quick. Nick and I were hanging out a few weeks ago. We got a burrito. And, well, different burritos. Just had to clarify. <laughs> different burritos. So we had different burritos. So I go and I order and... This is that cartoon. I didn't want to make it sound like that, the spaghetti. But uh, anyway, we're going, and we're at this burrito place. We get our food. We go back to the apartment, 
and we're sitting in my living room. We pray, and I go, I'm starving. And I take a bite, and I, oh. And he could just see me, I spit it out. And he goes, what's wrong? Everyone knows I'm picky. So I go, this is not what I asked for. That's how Jesus is describing this church. He says, I want you all the way in. You got to be on fire for me. Or I only deal with extremes. You better be on fire or you better just not even care. He goes, I would prefer you to be in an extreme. I don't like indifferent Christians is basically the message here. He says, if we're lukewarm, he will spit us out and we won't be his any longer. We have to be on fire for God here in Auburn. One of the last verses we'll go to in Revelation 2 and verse 4, Jesus says this, I have this against you to the church at Ephesus. You have left your first love. Now, I've tried to understand what love is. Um, Here's what I think it's like. At first, when you love something or you love someone, you'll do anything to get better at what you're doing. If it's football or pickleball or whatever, you'll spend all your time doing that. If it's loving someone like a brand new wife, your uh, newly married couple or a new husband, you do whatever it takes. You do all the stuff you were unwilling. You take out the trash. You do whatever. You know, all the honeydews get done on time and all of that stuff. 24-year-old single guy. That's what I think. But somewhere along the road, you lose an appreciation and love for whatever you're talking about. Jesus said that's what was going on at the church of Ephesus. They had a flame, but it went out. It's like the parable of the sower. The seed among the thorns, it was bearing fruit, it produced, but then distractions came. And then they stopped producing. We don't want to be this here. We got to keep going. And I said it in the business meeting, you're going to hear me say this until the beginning of the year. If we think we can just stay the same, Each and every one of us, if we can stay the same and this church grow, that's impossible. Coach Merzel, my football coach, he would tell us, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Everyone in this congregation will have to do more, including me, especially me. And we all have to be on the same page going forward, returning to our love for Christ. The transformation of a Christian begins in one's mind. And that's why Paul says in verse 2 of Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here are some ways to be transformed. Here's the application of all of what we talked about. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, the church has to be first in our lives. And all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, read the Bible, go figure, pray to God, fast. We don't really talk about that one. 
sing, serve, and worship. I don't want to get on a hobby horse right now. I just want to say this. I want us to ask ourselves, have you ever, first, how long have you been a Christian? How many years? Okay. How many times have you read the Bible? I'm just going to, I want to reason with us. Don't answer out loud, please. Would you want to go to the doctor who didn't read his textbook? How could any of us help anybody if we've never read the Bible? It's a good New Year's resolution. But lastly, our final two verses. And saying all this, you may be thinking this is a burden I cannot bear. This is too much. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The more you learn, the more you serve, the more you grow, the further Simon carried the cross, the lighter it got. The longer you're a Christian, the easier it gets. Because you learn more about Jesus. A preacher could not put it in any better words. Just to finish off our last verses, the words of Jesus. Then he said to them all in Luke 9, 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? We can't live for ourselves. We've got to have a desire to deny ourselves daily, not living for us, but living for Jesus. We have to pick up the cross like Simon did, but you can't do it today by force. No one can make you. You can't fool anyone. We can't fool each other. God knows who, who are his. And we can be crucified with Christ through baptism when we die to sin, we're buried in water, we're resurrected to live a new life. Spiritually changed and transformed the plan of salvation, the message forgiveness. Maybe you're here today and are not yet a Christian. We would love to help you. Please be transformed. Simon was not planning to change his life forever that day. And I doubt many of us were either today. But this is a chance to change, to have a new start, to be baptized into Christ. Maybe you're here and you've already done that, but maybe you want us to pray for your transformation, your spiritual metamorphosis. Does one of either class please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation? Heart the gentle voice of Jesus, Father.